morning, my dear brothers and sisters. What a great pleasure to be worshiping God with you here this morning. Not so much because of you, <laughs> but because the Spirit of the Lord, which is with us and unites our hearts and minds together in one truth and one gospel. Well, we're beginning to come to the end. In fact, uh, in terms of our journey through Scripture, this and our journey, especially through the book of Genesis, we have come to the beginning of the end of Genesis. And we are looking at the final chapter this week. And it, we're beginning to see the arc of this grand narrative that God is teaching us about who we are, who he is, and what he has done on our behalf. And in our community, as a church, we already see a little of what God is accomplishing as you look at this church body. And in fact, the more you participate in the life of this church and in this community, the more of what you see of God's grace among us. We had some examples of God's work among us this week. Uh, Mike and Julia and William and Eva's cell group gathered here on Friday. And we gathered just to come together and to sing our praises to God. Yesterday, uh, many of us were gathered together for a baby shower for Nat and Daisy. And that was a wonderful time of fellowship. Now, why are these blessings possible? And when we think about what this world is like, and when we think about the kind of problems that are here, it really ought to astound us what we have in the church. I mean, you look at all the different aspects of society. And yesterday, I was just reading the news. And I, I, I went to NBC and CNN. And they both had articles on uh, our airline industry. NBC News was reporting that last year, the rate of unruly airline passenger incidents rose by almost 50%, which is amazing in light of the fact that, you know how during the pandemic, there were all these incidents that we're seeing on airplanes, and especially when airline attendants had asked people to wear masks, and people were very upset about that, and uh, there were some incidents on our airlines, and so people thought, well, once these restrictions are lifted, uh, hopefully the, uh, the incidents would decrease. And yet, this year, up almost 50%. On their side, the airlines are getting worse at keeping passengers together with their luggage. Uh, with, even with the passengers using technology like AirTags to tell the airlines where their luggage actually is. CNN was reporting that 17% of the lost bags never even left the terminal. One woman tracked her lost AirPods to an airline luggage handler's home. And so that gives you an idea of where, what was happening with these things. So why is it that among God's people in the church, there can be such a different community? And Genesis tells us why. In fact, the entire narrative arc of the gospel is found right here in the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible. 
And so I want to begin this morning by asking the question that we asked last week. Why should we care? And last week, I was asking you, why should we care about the blessings that Jacob gives to his sons, this man who lived thousands of years ago, and he calls his sons together, and each of them has their own personality and characteristics and traits, and he gives a blessing appropriate to each one. And what difference does it make to us? Why should we care? This week, in chapter 50, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, you can see a great deal of our passage deals with the funeral arrangements of the same man who lived thousands of years ago. Why should we care? Well, let me remind you of what we saw last week with respect to, oh, thank you, with respect to uh, Jacob and his blessings. And I want to highlight two points in particular that lead us and set the context for why these funeral arrangements now are so important. And you'll remember we talked a little bit about that continuity between the nation of Israel and the church today, and how God, there are certain principles that govern the work of God among his people. And so similarly to the churches in Revelation, and we can see the relevance of that to us today as these warnings are given to the church in terms of what they're doing, and sometimes not what they're not doing, and how that ought to affect how we live today. Likewise, as Jacob gives these blessings to his children, we see the importance of the decisions that they make. God is sovereign. He determines all that happens in this world. And yet, one of the things I want to emphasize to you today is that Scripture, well, we, we talk about Scripture being history, right? And it's also his story, and it's also an appeal. Because Scripture presents to us God's perspective of this world and what is happening in it and the human situation. And God is asking us, will you trust what I have spoken about you and then live according to the truth that I have revealed? And Jacob's blessings, which the Scripture tells us was appropriate to each one, shows us that there were consequences to all the choices that they had made. And part of the compelling aspect of these blessings given to his children, Jacob loves his family as any father would. And yet these so-called blessings, in some respects, hardly seem to be blessings. Dan is like a viper by the side of his road, which causes his rider to rear up and fall. And centrally, among Jacob's prophetic utterances concerning his children, we see this statement in verse 18 of chapter 49. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And that's a very interesting statement. And last week I thought, why is that not in the middle? Because it kind of seems like everything revolves, and that's a central point of what's going on there in chapter 49, this idea of waiting for God's salvation, a refrain that was repeated throughout our worship this morning. 
And one of the things I realized this last week as I was looking both at chapter 49 and 50 is there is a certain way in which it is central. In terms of the numbers of sons, there are seven sons that come before and five sons that come after. But in terms of the inheritance, Jacob's exclamation comes in the middle. And so you'll remember that in the ancient East tradition, the eldest son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. And yet because of certain actions that those sons had taken, Reuben lost that place of preeminence. And Simeon and Levi, who were next because of the violent actions they had taken, had likewise lost their place. And instead, when Joseph in chapter 48 brings his sons to Jacob, Jacob gives him the double blessing. So that Ephraim and Manasseh are now adopted by Jacob. Taking that into account, and seeing Simeon and Levi now grouped together and thinking about how Israel will actually inherit the land when they come into the land, that actually does place Jacob's exclamation, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord, centrally in this passage. And it's this idea of waiting for God's salvation that then sets the context for what we have now in chapter 50. And I want to say a word of what we begin with here in chapter 50, because we see that Joseph, in verse 2, commands the servants, uh, the physicians, to embalm his father. And some people have wondered about this, because embalming was this Egyptian practice, and oftentimes was very associated with their cultic practices of how they were being prepared for the afterlife. Um, and we see that our text actually gives some details about this process. It says in Verse 2, and Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And I'll just point out two distinctions there. One is that it is here the physicians who are servants of Joseph who perform this procedure. Normally, it is the priests that would do this if it was an Egyptian funeral. And the reason for that is that there would be a lot of these um, religious rites that would go along with it, along with this process of embalming to prepare uh, the body for entrance into the afterlife. But here it's not those priests who perform the embalming, but Joseph's decisions. And we also see that the text especially knows for us the number of days during which the embalming uh, is performed. And it says that 40 days were required for the procedure from embalming, but then there's not then the religious rites that would have also accompanied it. And so we see here that the embalming is for a different purpose. And that leads us back again to why these things are happening, which is, if you remember from last week, uh, Jacob commands his sons to bring his body back to Egypt. And we see there that there is a trust there. Because Jacob and his family had prospered in Israel. God had blessed them there. They had come into the best of the land. And their flocks and numbers had multiplied. And yet Jacob remembered the covenant that God had given to his family, to Abraham, Isaac, and then himself. And he knew that though they 
prospered and would remain in Egypt for hundreds of years, God had said, I will bring you back to this land of promise. And what Jacob demonstrates here, and what he uses his very death to point out in commanding his children to bring him back there, was that he was going to trust in the promises of God. And so it's here, this idea of the promise of God and waiting for God's salvation and resting in the Lord that is highlighted in the death of Jacob. And these, of course, are very relevant to us today. Where is your hope? Are you resting in God? Are you waiting for his salvation? Or are you trying to work for and make a salvation for yourself? here in this world. And what we're going to do today is also what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, which is we are going to look at chapter 50 here as concluding a huge story that was begun throughout Genesis. And if you remember when we began the book of Genesis, we spent quite a few weeks just in those first two and then three chapters. In fact, we spent a couple months just on those introductory chapters because the book of Genesis and the first three chapters of Genesis introduce all the major themes of the scripture. They're all right here. And in fact, you can see the outline of the gospel in all of God's work of salvation right there in the beginning of Genesis. And here at the end of Genesis, we now see all these, how all these things are going to work out. Just to very quickly recap, you remember how God, in creating the world, had created for man's blessing, but man had rejected God's commandment and thought, Adam and Eve thought that they could find a better blessing for themselves. And then we have the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But even though Adam and Eve had sinned against God, God made a covenant with them and told the serpent, You lose. And the same creature that you have tempted into evil, I will restore into fellowship with myself, and he will defeat you. And how is that going to happen? And we're going to see that right here by the end of Genesis. And the rest of Scripture, in one sense, is just how does this all work out? How is God going to accomplish all this? But the story is right. And so Elder Gordon and myself will be taking the next few weeks to show us how it is that Genesis brings a triumphant conclusion to a story that began with hope, fell into darkness, but now has been restored and a salvation promised and already in an incipient form delivered. And so let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful story, a story of hope that even as we see all these troubling things going on in the world around us, and it seems a question whether we would die in a thermonuclear war or whether the planet will simply disintegrate due to all the trash we've piled up in it, and yet you have promised you will make all things new. You have made a new way for your people, a way not dependent upon technology or what man can do, but a transformation of our very natures by your power, but with our willing participation. 
Help us see how we live out that salvation, how we participate in the grand work of redemption that you are doing all over this world. In every nation, every tribe, every tongue, help us see how we live in your great salvation. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so as I said, Genesis is a wonderful story of hope and anticipation. Salvation has never been primarily about just not going to hell. Any more than being cured of cancer is all about not having to go to the doctor all the time anymore. There's a life to live, a freedom to enjoy, opportunities to embrace. And salvation is about more the blessings that God is now free to pour out upon his people. And yet, the unfortunate reality is that we so often close ourselves off to what God offers to us. We live Christian lives that are devoid of all the blessings so that our lives don't magnify God in the way that they ought, because God is a generous God. He's a God of a great salvation. And yet so often our lives don't reflect so much of the fullness of his salvation. And there's a freedom to come to a deeper, truer, more joyful life that we might have than so often we live. And in this way, scripture is an appeal. Will we see the story that God tells here about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers? And see that in here is a lesson for us about what God is doing in transforming who we are. Will we be fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, sisters and brothers in the way that God has intended, in the way that God has revealed we now have the power to become again? Or will we continue in our old ways of life? We are certainly going to be talking a lot about the sovereignty of God because everything that happens here in Genesis 50 happens according to the plan of God. And we'll see that Joseph himself refers to the importance of that. And yet, at the same time that we talk about the sovereignty of God, we also have to bear in mind that God always works through the instrumentation of human choice, human freedom. Sin and Satan are powers that enslave. And anyone who has ever been trapped in a sin, a sinful life, or addicted to something, whether drugs or pornography, can attest that what sin strives to accomplish in our lives is the removal of that choice and bondage into a way of life. And God, though he's sovereign, frees and opens up to us all that we can be and invites us to explore what we can have in him. And so what can we see of this in Genesis chapter 50? First of all, I want to highlight what we can see in respect to the restoration of fellowship. And so here's one of the first themes that we saw. God creates Adam and Eve, and all this world is in harmony. And yet when Adam and Eve 
put their interests above the interests of God. So you can, I, I've mentioned this before, but when you think about like, you know, Adam and Eve making that choice, how are they going to know what's the best thing to do? Well, one easy way to do it would simply be this. God had created all the world for them. And that he had created Adam and Eve for one another and delighted in giving them to one another. And so if they had simply looked around at the creation around them, they had ample evidence that God was a loving God who desired to give them great blessing. And even if they had truly thought that their interests lay in taking that fruit What's the proper response to someone who has loved you and given so much to you? A response of gratitude. A complimentary response of love. When someone has poured love out upon you, the right response is to love them back. And if God has said, for my sake, don't take the fruit of this tree, the loving response, regardless of whether it was desirable, for your sake, I will refrain. But it's the setting of competing interests against one another that we see all over this world and resulting in so many conflicts. That is what Adam and Eve introduced into the world. And so fellowship, community, unity, is broken. But what have we seen here as we came to the end of the book of Genesis? And I want you to think about the context in which the passage we have read occurs in. And so have your Bibles open and be looking here at Genesis 50. And I want you to look Notice two words in particular, words associated with weeping or mourning and Egypt. And so we, we, we talked a little bit about the embalming. And Joseph goes to Pharaoh, and he, he makes this appeal, and he says to Pharaoh, if I have found favor in your eyes, allow me to go and bury my father in Canaan. In verse 6, Pharaoh answers, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. Now these are not. Jacob and his family. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called Abel Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. And Abel Mizraim, Abel is the word for mourning. Mizraim is Egypt. This is a great mourning of 
Egypt. And this is a mourning over Jacob, the patriarch of Israel. And remember the context in which Genesis is written. Genesis is written by Moses, who is the great leader of Israel, who is leading Israel in the exodus out of the land of Egypt, which has become for them a land of bondage and of slavery. And the Egyptians, those who had harshly treated them, mistreated them. Why this emphasis? on Egypt and how Egypt mourned for Jacob. What is this telling us as we have this repetition over and over of mourning and mourning associated strangely, not with Joseph so much and his brothers. In fact, Joseph is the only one of the brothers who's mentioned, but the Egyptians. Well, ask a few questions. What is this narrative we're dealing with? What was introduced? What were the themes introduced here in the book of Genesis? How would this text affect the Israelites as they're journeying out of Egypt? And what's the point of this to highlight? Because certainly you could have highlighted the different ways that the brothers had mourned their father or the different things that they had done. But the account of the funeral of Jacob highlights the participation by the Egyptians. The purpose here is to show that the right person, Joseph, who has found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and accomplished the salvation of Egypt, could unite the Jews with their enemies. And just as the love for Joseph had united the house of Pharaoh with the house of Jacob, there can be one who can bring together people of every tribe, every tongue. In uh, the homeschool community that Irene and I were in when we were back in Illinois, uh, it was a Christian homeschooling community we had around, I think, around 60 families, uh, around 100 kids or so. And among them, we met a very interesting couple. Because I didn't realize until we met them that this people group, actually, there were a lot of different people groups in there, some of which I'd never even heard before. Uh, but this one I'd heard of before, but I didn't know they existed, the Assyrians. And we met a couple, they were both doctors, who were Assyrian and part of this Christian educational community. And uh, many of you will be aware that the Assyrians were the great oppressors of Israel, right? And so uh, after the nation of Israel is established, it becomes a divided kingdom. And when the kingdom divides, there's a nation and a people that comes and conquers those northern tribes, the tribes of Israel. And it was the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had acted extremely cruelly to the people of God. But in our homeschool community, we had these people who, from history, had been the enemies of God, but now were united together with us as a Christian community and a people of God. 
even in the context where Israel was coming out of the land of Egypt and had been oppressed by the Egyptians, there was a reminder here given by Moses to his people. The right man can bring us together. The right man can restore unity. And there was a time that we and the Egyptians were united. And that points to a unity that can happen again. It points to a reversal of what happened in the fall when the interests of all different peoples came into conflict so that one people were divided from another people. But you see here at the end of Genesis, we have a reversal of that. God shows, I can bring people back together again. And it's because Joseph found favor both with Israel and with Egypt. And we also follow a leader, a savior, who reunites people of every tongue and every tribe. And so the disunity of this world does not have to continue to be. We serve a God who unites. We see this theme continued. In the next section, starting with verse 15, Joseph's brothers are getting worried. Why are they worried? Well, they know that Jacob had loved Joseph so very much, and Joseph, likewise, loved his father. And their thought, the thought came into their mind, well, Joseph loved Jacob. But we were pretty awful to Joseph. And perhaps Joseph put off revenge for the sake of our father. But dad's gone. And so they send a message to Joseph basically saying, uh, Joseph, dad said not to kill us. And you know, we're, we're all servants of the same God. And not only that, we're your servants too. So, you know, really, anything you do, just, we, can, we can do it. Uh, just don't kill us. And look at Joseph's response. When the brothers send this message to him, verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You remember what that weeping was when we were going through all those previous passages? Every time Joseph, uh, uh, Jake, uh, every time Joseph's brothers came before him, before they recognized him in Egypt, remember what Joseph had to keep doing? He had to keep departing from them because he knew he couldn't come back to them in the way that they had been. But he tested them to see how God might have transformed but in that process, he would depart and he would mourn. And, and what the scripture is telling us there is the love that he had for his brothers and his desire to be united with them. And yet knowing that there has to be a transformation before that reunion could happen. But that mourning always signifies Joseph's great desire 
to be united with his family. And so the response here when they tell Joseph, please forgive us. What the text is telling us is Joseph's response is not just, okay, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I forgive you. And I'll just tell you a little bit about our family. Um, when we sin against each other, we do make a practice of asking forgiveness for one another. And both the apologies and the forgiveness sometimes seem very perfunctory because we don't like to apologize and we want to get the whole process over with as quickly as possible. And so it's just, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And then we're done. <laughs> but what we see here is heartfelt. Joseph weeps when they speak to him. And then his brothers come and fall down before them and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is not a perfunctory forgiveness. Joseph wants his brothers to know, I hold nothing against you. I love you. I desire the renewal of our family, of our community, of our unity with one another. Joseph, how is Joseph able to respond in this way? One thing we see is that he does trust in the sovereignty of God. And I have to say, I go to this passage all the time because I get offended all the time by things that people do. You know, like someone who cuts me off on the highway, you get upset, and I think, well, okay. So here's the thought process I go through. <laughs> and don't do it this way because there's a meanness about it that, that Joseph doesn't have, you have here. You can see here he is loving his brothers. Okay, but I'll tell you how I do it. So uh, let's just take that example. Someone cuts me off, and I think, okay, that person just sinned. And so they are incurring God's displeasure upon them and God's judgment upon them. And yet, this is for my good. Because everything that happens in my life, because I'm a child of God, God designs for my good. And, 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 and Joseph says it here. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is the way that God's sovereignty operates. Right? There are all these evil things that happen in this world. There are all these things that, you know, if we had a choice of how our life would go, we, wouldn't, we certainly wouldn't choose it. And yet the confidence we have because of the sovereignty of God is this. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. And in the way that God will work through these unpleasant events that happen in our lives is he is using them to sanctify us for our blessing. And so what I think is, oh, this person has just sacrificed for me. They are willingly incurring God's judgment and displeasure on them in order to bless me. And so I'm trying to change how I'm thinking about it from, you know, like, I'm mad at them to, okay, this person is kind of like sacrificing for me by doing sin that will end up in my good. Now, rather than think of it quite that way, try to like have Joseph's way of doing it here where he loves them. And his love is a very capacious love. 
It's love that's not unsettled by the sinfulness that goes on in any community because he has confidence in the sovereignty of God. And he has a love for his brothers. And so he wants to see all of them united together and coming before God and receiving the blessings of God. And he himself desires to be an instrumentation of that blessing. Do we in this church love each other in the way that Joseph loved his brothers? And certainly none of us have suffered in the way that Joseph suffered because of the wickedness of his brothers. And yet, what does he say to them? Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, coming back to the restoration of that fellowship. Do you see how we see one aspect of that? We don't know how that's going to happen. We don't know how God will accomplish these transformations. We do see it in Jacob's family. But that same self-seeking that Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, here is reversed by Joseph. Because in Genesis 3, the analysis is, what's good for us? What's desirable for us? And we'll do it even if it offends the other party. But here is the exact opposite. I will receive evil in order that you might receive good. And I want your blessing through my sacrifice. If we have a church, if we have a community like that, we will transform not only our church, not only our community, but we will be part of God's transformation of this world. That's one of the things that I'm very thankful for. Uh, Irene mentioned it earlier. Uh, Waishan's uh, daughter, Jillian, and our sons, Emmeth and Johanan, have gone off. And, and we're very thankful that they're doing this because um, probably a lot of you don't know this. is Jillian's birthday this upcoming week. And instead of celebrating her birthday here and having fun, she's off learning how she can help others and learn how to share the gospel and help other children. They're, 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 uh, I think one of the days they're going to be running a children's camp where they'll be teaching and telling stories to and sharing the gospel with other kids. Can we be a community that will transform others and offer them the hope of the gospel while showing the power of the gospel in our lives? Because we will be a people not easily unsettled because we have confidence in the sovereignty of God. And we see that Joseph's confidence ultimately is in the promises of God. And so Genesis, you know, the end of Genesis 49 and 50 could be entitled, Everyone Dies, because Jacob dies, and then Joseph dies, and presumably all the important characters die. And you know what? You and I are going to die. Some of us perhaps sooner, some of us perhaps later. We have no way of knowing when God might call us home. But do you see that there is a parallel between how Joseph dies and how Jacob dies? And so look at verses 22 to the end. 
So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, was counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Again, Joseph, just like his father, is trusting in those covenant promises of God. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph is confident of God's covenant. And in bringing these two passages together, the, the death of the father and the death of the son, though separated by over 50 years, what we see is they will still be united by the covenant promises of God. If God keeps his promises, Jacob and Joseph spend eternity together. These are servants who have their treasure in heaven. We had a study this last week in Rise, and not the group discussion group I was in, but one of the discussion groups got into this debate about Jesus gives this command, uh, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And it was like, should we actually do this? I mean, okay, Jesus said it, but okay. Uh, and I would ask you, where is your treasure? Because very clearly, one of the principles of that passage is that our earthly wealth and possession should not be a hindrance to coming before God. Are we willing to set all those things aside in order to follow God? Where might God call you? I'm very thankful, actually, uh, for one young lady who said, yeah, I don't need things in this world. Uh, because at that time, I, was, I resigned from my job as an attorney, and I was going to seminary. I didn't know it was going to last so long. I didn't know how poor we were going to be. But I was asking a certain young woman to enter into that life with me. And if Irene was not willing to marry a man who was going to have no income for many years and spend the first decade or so of her marriage in really kind of uh, below poverty line conditions, I wouldn't have a family. I wouldn't have a wife. I wouldn't uh, probably be here today. Where is your treasure stored? Because where you put that, what you place your confidence in, can become either a source of the unity in your family, in your community, or it can be something that divides. I mean, you've seen over and over, right? Families that have a big inheritance, what happens almost inevitably with those families? Quarreling, division, squabbling over the wealth. And yet, if you have a family that trusts in God and their treasure is not on this earth but in heaven, that's the thing that we are urging over and over for our children. What do you love? And we hope you don't love this world too much. If you love this world, you'll lose it and one another. If you trust God, if your treasure is in heaven, you'll get everything. And so make your choice. And so here we have one aspect of the testimony of Joseph. And uh, after we pray, I want our, our community to be encouraged 
by another testimony. We have Larry here this morning, and he'll be coming up to share his testimony with us. And so let's pray for Larry and thank the Lord for his work. Father God, we thank you for the life of Joseph, how he lived faithfully before you, and he placed his hope in you. And because his hope was in you, and it was your salvation that he longed for, he could forgive great transgression that resulted in his enslavement and imprisonment for 17 years of the best years of his life, but willing to do so to be an instrument of blessing to others. Lord, I pray you would transform this community, that as our brothers and sisters learn to live according to your truth, that we would see your goodness and others might come to receive you and trust in you more because they see how you've worked in our lives. I pray that you would speak through Larry this morning, that we would be encouraged through your faithfulness in his life, that he, as he testifies to us of what you have done in him, we might give you glory and be encouraged to live more faithfully ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Larry? Sorry, it doesn't go that high. <laughs> Hi, my name is Larry Hyman. Um, my wife and uh, we were just making this show, so I'm going to share a little bit of you about how I came to Christ. Um, as many of you know, I am a I'm in academia, in academia, and I've been in academia for more than 30 years now, and it seems to me that I look, most researchers fall into one or two camps, broad camps, and the first camp I'm going to call the explorers. These are people who stumble into some domain that are intrigued by some aspect of it. They want to learn more about it. They dive into it wholeheartedly. They really get into the arcane details of this discipline. Ultimately, they want to explore this more for themselves. They move into academic research on the topic. Where the research is taking them, they're not really sure. And in some cases, they even wonder aloud, is what I'm doing actually relevant in the real world? But they're so enamored with the new learning and, and what they're learning about this domain that the relevancy just isn't really an important factor to them. These are truth seekers who simply want to discover truths about topics that, uh, topics that they love. Now, there's a second group in academia, and I call those the advocates. Those are people who have a specific problem they're trying to solve. Uh, or cause they're trying to promote, uh, and everything they're due in their research is ordered to that end. When they find new information, they encounter new thoughts, they ask themselves, could this be useful in attaining my end goal? If so, it's retained and integrated into the work, otherwise it's just dismissed and discarded. Truth is not so much concern to them as impact. When they find something they believe is impactful and promotes that end goal, then they can be vocal in making sure that others recognize these new findings. Now, having broken the two distinct camps, let me just clarify this. Uh, most, this is really a continuum. I think most academics fall in some mix of the two archetypes, archetypes here. Some are heavy on the explorer side with just a little bit of the advocate. Some are 95% advocate and only a little bit of the explorer. And some are probably 50-50 balance and the whole range in between. But what I found in talking to faculty over the years is it's often their earliest experiences that mold and determine them into the type of researcher they're going to be. And I had such an experience early my freshman year at MIT when I came to know Jesus. And when I look back at that, I see how it influences the job I do now as a researcher and as a professor. 
So what happened there? My freshman year at MIT, uh, I met another stu student named Roland, who was a junior studying physics. Now, Roland was very passionate about physics. In fact, so passionate, he went on to get his PhD, loves physics. Um, but as much as Roland loves physics, he loves Jesus even more. And the very first time I met Roland, I kid you not, he came right up to me and he goes, would you like to get together for an investigational Bible study on the claims of Jesus? No, no, I have no interest in that whatsoever. Like, what would compel you to ask me such a stupid question? That's all I, I was just like, no, no, I have no interest. I, I just seriously, I gave him this, this dirty look. And in fact, my roommate who had invited him, and my roommate was uh, involved, my, his name is Mike, he was involved with crew, uh, crew at the time, and he had uh, invited Roland to our room. Uh, I was so mad at Mikey that I had this ACDC tape. Now, I don't listen to ACDC. This is bootleg tape I had from a friend. But I played it anyways just to annoy Mikey because I was like, how do you dare you invite this guy to our room? It's like, oh, anyways. But the really funny thing was over the next couple weeks, I kept running into Roland. Like, I kept running into this guy constantly. And he kept asking me questions about the Bible and asking me spiritual questions and stuff. And finally, at one point, he asked me if I'd like to get together to discuss spiritual ideas. I don't know why I said yes, except vaguely in my mind, I remember thinking, well, it's not as bad as an investigational Bible study claims that Jesus is so sure, what the heck, let's just get this out of the way. Um, and so we started having this, these spiritual discussions, but I made it really clear to Roland as an aspiring engineer, I had a naturalistic worldview. Uh, I don't believe in miracles, I don't believe in healings, I don't believe in demons or the supernatural or any of that stuff. Um, and as we discussed this and many more issues, the really funny thing was our discussions over time, I realized, and because God has a great sense of humor, that we were having an investigational Bible study in the claims of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so, and, uh, but at one point we were having this really interesting discussion about the veracity of the resurrection record. And I explored many alternatives to these claims. But after all these discussions, uh, all the things I read and all the things I were rolling, I, I just didn't even know what to believe anymore. And there was a part of me that wanted to hold on to my original position on the supernatural. And I, I admit there was some pride I felt. I, I did not want to lose an argument. In fact, one thing, I, he was originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and I kept saying, I'm not losing to some Yahoo from St. Louis. And, uh, but the, uh, but anyways, but then there's another part of me that saw this as a puzzle that had to be solved. And I remember, it was spring semester my freshman year. I was sitting in my dorm room uh, on, Sunday, on a Saturday morning and I'm wrestling with these questions. Did Jesus actually die on the cross? Was the cross actually, was the tomb actually empty or not? Did people just go to the wrong tomb? Did Jesus followers move the body so it appeared like he rose from the dead? Did the disciples just imagine Jesus was alive because they just couldn't cope with his actual demise? Now, here's the thing. I had read all these arguments, both pro and con on both sides. I knew these arguments, and I, and I, uh, but I was still going through it myself, and I'm, I, I took out this yellow legal pad, and I'm writing arguments on both sides and trying to weigh it out. Um, and in the end, I realized there's no way I'm going to be 100% sure about this. But then the thought came to my mind. is, what in life are you 100% sure about? Uh, not much. I can't think of anything I was 100% sure about. And so I wrestled with this, and I thought, I really want just to stick to my guns, but if I was intellectually honest with myself and not just affirming my priors, far and away the most plausible explanation was that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But then, if that's actually the case, A, there's really a God. B, Jesus is really his son. 
and see if I'm Jesus' son, I should listen to what he has to say. And what he says is, I am in desperate need of forgiveness. Now, here's the thing. Even by human standards, I knew that I was far from perfect, but I really know this now. You know, it's really interesting because when people talk about their conversion, a lot of times I hear people say things like, they were so happy. They felt this joy, this love. They felt unburdened. I, I didn't feel any of those things. Uh, in fact, you know, it's interesting. Years later, I, I read a quote from C.S. Lewis talking about his own conversion, and he described himself as the most uh, desolate and reluctant con convert in all of England. And, and I, I thought, yes, I understand that feeling completely. I, I felt no joy in this moment. I rather I felt a sense of resignation, a sense of duty, but I realized that the right thing to do in this particular case, because the truth is the truth, was to commit myself to following Jesus and accept his atoning sacrifice on the cross to cover my own sinfulness. Now, having said this, I also made it clear to God at that moment, okay, I'm going to believe in you, but only in a limited way. I still don't believe in miracles, except for the resurrection, of course, because that's obviously a big miracle. And, I, and I'm not believing in healings. Okay, okay, Jesus could heal because he is the son of God, of course, but he doesn't do that anymore and doesn't happen anymore today. And I don't believe in demons or devils or, 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 or things like that because that's just really, you know, epilepsy or mental illness that's misdiagnosed uh, or anything else really supernatural. But the interesting thing is Jesus took my small bit of faith and it was tiny faith, right? And he started to guide me. And it was interesting because Roland was immediately excited that I came to Christ and immediately started Bible study with believers Bible study with me, had me starting memorizing God's word. I thought, really, is that what you people do? And I thought, wait a second, I am you people now. Okay, I, okay, sure, I guess that's what we do. Uh, and then I uh, started teaching me a lot more about God's word and what was actually in it. Because I have to be honest, I had read very little of the Bible myself. And I mostly knew like old Sunday school stories like Noah's Ark and Crossing the Red Sea. Um, and I wasn't even sure I really believed those things anyway. So it's like, I learned a lot and, um, and he really discipled me, which is really awesome. And as time went on, though, I began to see that Jesus had consistently better answers for what was happening in the world than the conventional wisdom of the time. And that encouraged me to trust him more because I could see that Jesus was telling me the truth. And the interesting thing is I learned to trust Jesus in these, these things that I could see and understand. I also started to learn to trust him in things I couldn't see and understand, in supernatural things. And I took time, took a lot of time, and over time, God softened my resistance to all things supernatural and helped me to realize uh, that he still continues to do supernatural things, that I've actually got a chance to now see him do things in my life, in the life of my family, uh, and he still does these things to bless us and to bring him glory. Um, and as I've learned to trust Jesus more, uh, I've learned to see him do these supernatural things in my life. But it's also interesting too, because I know Jesus cares a lot about the truth. In fact, you read the gospels all the time. What is one thing you hear Jesus say all the time? Truly, truly, I say to you. Truth is a big deal to Jesus. In fact, in John 18, 37, Jesus talking to Pilate says, in fact, the reason I was born, pretty big reason, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And it was actually interesting because of my, my passion for truth, God ended up calling me, in, it called, gave me a calling to be a Christian professor at a secular university. 
Uh, and he gave me this calling and this desire. And then he set everything up for me. He helped me get through my PhD. He set me up at Michigan State initially. It was a great place for me to grow professionally, but also spiritually and really helped me learn to surrender to him um, and prepare me for my, my latest venture, which the last 25 years, I've been a professor here in information systems at Carnegie Mellon. Um, but I would never, God prepared every step of the way. He made all that possible. It's not because there's sometimes I, I tell, I was talking to my son about this. I said, I in no way deserve to be at Carnegie Mellon. It's God set everything up for me. He's laid the paths. He's opened the doors uh, and he's allowed me to be there and to be a faithful witness to him, just to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus to anybody who will listen. However, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in a small group Bible studies or whatever the opportunities, I'm thankful because he's given me that opportunity to proclaim his truth. And it is about truth and it very much is about truth and when i decide to follow jesus i have to admit i wasn't exactly overjoyed or excited but looking back it really was the best decision of my life had i stuck to my guns had i followed the path of the advocate um and i and i really felt that pull um i would have ignored contrary arguments of the resurrection i would have held to those that supported my established views and i never experienced the joy i now feel as a christ follower Thankfully, the explore part of me com compelled me to value truth over position and let me conclude that the resurrection was the best working hypothesis I could see. And though that faith I had was initially small, and it was really tiny, okay, <laughs> God grew that faith over time and he showed me that he, you know, that that little trust that I showed him, he, he really is trustworthy. Uh, and that a life following him would help me discover many more exciting truths and for that. I am eternally, eternally grateful. Thank you. Let's take a moment to pray for our brother, Larry. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing Larry here. He and Anne have been a great encouragement and a blessing to our community. We thank you also for Roland and his persistence mm, in yes, Lord. bearing witness to yes. your truth, Lord, and wherever he is, Lord, we ask that you would bless him and keep yes. him, and we're reminded, Lord, of your faithfulness and how you work through all your church, Lord, for the blessing of all. Thank you for Larry and Anne, and we ask that you watch over them and their family and help us as a church community to likewise be a blessing to them. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, Thanks. Thanks.